Okay, I trust you all had a good holiday and had plenty of turkey to eat or ham or whatever you eat on during this time of year, and uh, it's, it's always a good time to uh, get together with family and friends. This morning, though, as we look at the Word of God, we're continuing in Hebrews chapter 13, so take, our, take your Bibles and turn there. And let's look at this passage this morning, because now I'm getting into the area also of the practicality again of the Christian race, the Christian walk, the Christian life, however you want to say it. And today we're going to be looking at the Christian's acceptable worship. What's exactly acceptable to God when it comes to our worship? Well, sometimes we do complicate things uh, too much in this area where the Bible simplifies it. And it simplifies it to the point where we can look at our own lives, see what we're doing, examine ourselves, and then actually answer the question, is my worship acceptable? Yes or no? And if it's not in certain areas, then you adjust where you need to. So after some time of examining the essential marks or virtues of the Christian life, we must conclude that they lead to a very specific action. And what is that action? Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the action of the believer offering up sacrifices to God that are acceptable. So here we come to a section of Hebrews that teaches us that we can come before the Father and offer up sacrifices before God. Yes, Christians are to offer up sacrifices before God. Now, using sacrificial language is, is, is not un, uh, unfamiliar to the book of Hebrews, but it surely is uh, very uh, unfamiliar to a postmodern day. But And it does conjure up thoughts of offering up animals on the altar, that's for sure. But it's the best imagery that the Bible offers this morning, that the animal sacrifices of early days have been rendered forever obsolete by Christ, by his self-offering. That's been evident throughout all the book of Hebrews. But there is always room. There is always room for worship rendered by obedient hearts, by Christians, by those who know Christ. So in the Old Testament times, when the saints offered up sacrifices, they did so anticipating, by faith, a better sacrifice. And of course, that better sacrifice was Christ himself. He is the complete, the perfect, the unrepeatable sacrifice for believers as a high priest. So now that Jesus has sacrificed completely, and his sacrifice is complete, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that God's people stop offering sacrifices to God. We just offer sacrifices for a different reason and in a different way. 
The different reason is simply this, because Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with his blood. People are called by the gospel, of course, to receive Jesus as their substitute sacrifice. And once they have accepted God and are in fellowship with him, then believers are strengthened every day by his grace. And they don't offer sacrifices to God in order to secure their redemption that's for sure. No, their redemption is already secure. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 12, the writer of Hebrews already said to us, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us all. He's, he's obtained it for us already. And then in Ephesians, of course, it says... Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. So our redemption has already been sealed. So we don't offer up sacrifices to God in order to secure our redemption. Our redemption is already complete and secure in God. So it's, for, it's not for any of those reasons. The only reason, the only reason we offer these sacrifices that we're going to look at today to God is this. Look at the last phrase in verse number 16 after the comma. It says, For with such sacrifice, God is what? Pleased. There it is. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. In fact, in fact you want to sum up the Christian life. The Christian life is this live a life that's pleasing to God. If I were to say, what's the definition of the Christian life? That's it right there, life pleasing to God. In fact, all over the Word of God, you're going to find this particular admonition to the believers. For example, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian church, chapter 5, verse number 9, Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, that means whether you're alive and living or you're going to be absent from your body, to be pleasing to the Lord to be pleasing to him. Why does he say that? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then right here in Hebrews, if you remember back to chapter 11, look back there with me and look at verse number 5. Because we, have, we had an example there of somebody who lived a pleasing life before God. Way back in the beginning. Back before the flood. Before the worldwide flood. And it says this in Hebrews 5 and verse 6. Verse five, chapter 11, excuse me, verse 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And then it says this in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, he is saying here, listen, here's our example, an Old Testament example, before the cross example, and he pleased God just the way we may please him today. What is, how did he do it? Well, 
Enoch. There are several things that were included in Enoch. Right? Um, he was pleasing to God. And in Genesis, where this passage comes from, uh, he was pleasing to God for this reason. He walked with God. He walked with God. And, of course, it says it in several places in Genesis that Enoch walked with God. Uh, he walked with God, and then God took him. He didn't die. He took him. In, fetter, in fact, back then when I was in that passage, the word walk suggests Action. It's a metaphor of biblical faith. To walk with God, as suggested by R. Kent Hughes, means that there must be mutual agreement with the one that you're walking with. As in Amos chapter 3, verse 3, verse number 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. So if you are walking with God, then you are agreeing on the destination. That means the same place God's heading, you're heading. If you are walking with God, then you, you are agreeing to follow God's path, not your path or someone else's path, but the path that God laid out. And then also, if you're going to be agreeing with God, then you are agreeing on the same pace. If you're going to walk with somebody, you can't run ahead of them or lag behind them. You've got to walk with them. You have to walk in step with them. So he is saying here, listen, he pleased God by walking in the same place, on the same path, at the same pace with God. And so that is pleasing to God. What did God do? He liked that so much, he took him. Also, pleasing God in Genesis also included steadfast, consistent, and forward-looking faith. It, I'm just reminding you of what Genesis 5 tells us about Enoch, that it says this, so all the days of Enoch were 365 days. Enoch walked with God. He walked with God 365 days. 365 days of righteous living, even in the midst of, remember, pre-flood, terribly evil times. This is what the Word of God says about the times before the great flood. In Genesis 6:11. now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. That's when Enoch lived. He lived in the midst of a cesspool of sin, of wickedness, where the evil in their heart was continual of all the people around him. And here's this guy who just is living a simple life following God. So you know what it means for us. It means that even in the wickedest times, in the wickedest places, it is still possible to live with an enduring faith that pleases God. So the necessary condition for pleasing God and walking intimately with him is faith. And without faith, remember, it's impossible to please God. You can't please God if you don't have faith. Now, he supported that necessary condition in Scripture right here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, with three things. What does it really mean to believe God or to have faith in God? Number one, that we must approach God. Verse number six, believing. For he who comes to God must believe. That's one of the requirements, right? You have to believe God. 
And so, therefore, that's part of what faith is, believing what God said about himself, that he actually is real. And then it says in Hebrews eleven six 6 also that you believe a second thing. You believe that God exists, that God is a real person. He has real personality. He has, is really involved in this world. He's really involved in your life, that God is real. I heard and read that uh, Doug Wilson, who writes in a small little magazine called Credenda Agenda, sometimes he writes some very thought-provoking things, and he said that there's only two kinds of atheists. One who believes there's no God, and one who hates him. They kind of go hand in hand. If you don't believe there's a God, then ultimately you, don't, you believe that it's all about you, and it's all about what you could do, and there's really no order. It's, the world's pretty much chaotic place, and, uh, and so therefore you just do what you feel or what you think is right. But ultimately there are also those who don't believe there's a God. They will ultimately hate him and so believe that he does not exist. He does not have personality that he has wound up this world in some way and just let it go. Like deists believe, most of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence were deists. Uh, and so therefore, faith means that you believe that in God's words and you believe that God actually is and that he's a person that is involved in your life. And then also you believe in Hebrews eleven six in his personal generosity. It says there, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's God's grace. That God really is giving grace to people. And so Enoch came to God regularly, daily, believing that he was alive, that he was God, that he is. And he also found God to respond positively and abundantly to those who sought him because he found out that God's a rewarder. Not a condemner in this case, but a rewarder of those who live by faith. So the bottom line is that you, can, you can't really know that he's a rewarder of those who seek him unless you already rely on him as the only true and almighty God, unless you trust him that he will fulfill all his promises and unless you find him the source of your deepest satisfaction. Remember, Enoch enjoyed walking with God. He loved to walk with God. He loved who God was. And Christian life and faith will always bring you to the place where your affections, your affections for God are heightened to a place they've never have been before. And the more you know about God, the higher affection you have for God. And the more desire you have for him in your life every single day. And so the Lord becomes the most important thing of, of, that could be in your life. So what we do understand from Enoch's example of faith is that real believers desire God as a companion and seek to please him wherever they go and whatever they do. So what did Enoch get for such desired fellowship and a pleasing lifestyle before God? Well, in Hebrews 11:5, God took him. 
God says, I enjoy fellowship with you so much, Enoch, I'm just going to take you to heaven, forget the death part. Because you please me so much. You know what, and that, isn't that not real for a Christian? Doesn't God forget the death part when we are trusting Christ by faith? Death has no masterial rule over us anymore. It has, it, it's not our enemy anymore. God's taking care of that. He's defeated it. Hebrews already said he's defeated death and Satan. So God's forgot, forgetting the death part. He's translating us from life here on earth to life in his presence. See, that's where faith brings you. He brings you to that place. So with that in mind, that background in mind, because that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a life that pleases God. Once again, let's dip back into the lettuce bowl of Scripture that will help us see what acceptable worship is for the Christian now, today. And here's the first thing. Look, look at your Bibles. Here's the first thing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 let me just back up in this verse for a minute. Here's the proper approach of Christian worship, the proper approach. And what is it? Look what it says in verse number 15. It says, through him then. There's the proper approach. Are you surprised by that after this far coming in Hebrews that the proper approach? Matter of fact, you should not be surprised that there is only one way to approach God and offer worship before him, and that's through Jesus, right? That's the only way. So proper worship to God is always through our high priest, Jesus Christ. So that's God's way. You can't go in every other way. There's not many religions that lead to the same place. There's only one way to approach God without coming under his wrath, and that is through Christ. So see, he doesn't go into great detail in verse number 15 about through him because he's, the whole book is about that. So he says, listen, if you don't get it by now, you'll not get it. So I'm going to say this. Today, as a believer, if you're going to worship God, you come through Christ. He's the doorway into proper Christian worship. In fact, it was the apostle Peter who said almost exactly the same thing where it says in 1 Peter 5, 2, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Same thing. You're not going to get a conflict of interest on this point with biblical writers. That the only way, there's only one way to approach God, there's not many, and that approach must be throughout the sacrifice of our high priest, Jesus Christ. So that's the proper approach. Here's the second thing in verse number 15, the frequency of Christian worship. It says this, through him then let us continually offer up sacrifice. So here is the frequency of Christian worship. Now, why does it say that here to this Hebrew audience that was really the basic audience here in the book of Hebrews? It's because, remember, in their mind, to offer up sacrifice was connected to a festival, to a special day, to a certain time, to a, a, a time of a month or a time of the year. Where he is saying here, no, for the believer who comes to God through Christ, it's to be continually. In other words, day by day is worship to God. 
day by day. It's, it's, it's offering up sacrifices to God, not regulated by some festival, not regulated by some special holiday, not regulated by a certain day, a time of the month, or of the year. Christian worship is to be offered up day by day. The moment you and I awake, we begin to worship God. We, we begin to either grumble in our spirit or thank God for the day. Thank you, Lord, for another day, another breath, for, for, for life, for be able to get up if you can do that. Even if you can't do that or it's hard as you get older to do that, you still are thanking God because, see, your, your body's growing old and you know that and uh, your spirit's grown stronger, though, right? To be with God, to dwell with God forever because according to... Uh, one linguist, he wrote this, that the rabbinical, the rabbinical tradition teaches that all the Mosaic sacrifices would have been end, would have come to an end except one sacrifice, and that was simply this. That was the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The thank offering was the only thing that never came to an end, and that all prayers would cease except the prayer of thanksgiving. Well, that leads us to the next thing, and I'm went quickly through those two because I want to get to the third one and that's the particulars of Christian worship found in verse number 15 the last part of the verse and this really does answer the question for us that what's why are our sacrifices different because they're of a different kind than the Old Testament that we are to sacrifice ourselves we are the living sacrifices, Paul says in Romans chapter 12. We are to come to God. Isn't that strange, a living sacrifice? It's almost like an oxymoron, is it? isn't it? How can you be a living a sacrifice, something that dies? No, you already died in Christ. And now that you're alive in Christ, you offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. And so this is where he's getting, this is what he's getting to. This is the different kind that we are to offer to God ourselves, our very life. And how do we do that? Well, look at one of the first particulars in verse 15. It says this, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So here it is. We are offering up to God every day of our life praise. Now, if we just got done reflecting on what just came before, then let me just backtrack, because I can go over a bunch of things. What can we praise God about? We can praise God about a lot of things, right? Matter of fact, we can praise God about almost everything, but let's just backtrack for a minute. Let's go up to verse number 1 of chapter 13 of Hebrews, and I'm just going to package it like this. Shouldn't we offer up praise to God for brotherly love? Brotherly love that has been shown to us in our Christian lives since we've been believers. Also, when we learn that God loved us first and that his greatest demonstration of the Lord toward us was expressed in his sacrificial death on the cross. When we learn that and we learned we didn't love God first. No, it didn't happen, sorry. God loved us first. And then when we found out God loved us first and we didn't love him first, then we find out because of his demonstration of the cross, wow, God loves me. 
Can you praise God for that and praise God for the love that comes from others because of their relationship with Christ? See, shouldn't we also offer up praise for verse number 2, chapter 13, hospitality? The hospitality that we have received from the hands of others who reached out to us and cared for us in our needs and praise God that we can do the same for others. Shouldn't we do that? Isn't that something we ought to be doing on a regular basis, being hospitable. You know, after preaching messages on hospitality, my wife and I last week uh, were in New York City um, for our anniversary, and um, we, we came back late at night, and we're at the, you know, you know, that's the day it rained all day long from the day, you know, it, it poured all day long. Well, we were in the city, it was pouring all day and so we came back after a great time in the city and we are standing in New Brunswick at the train station and it's like we had a tag on us just ask us for help anybody ask us for help because we stood there and we people just came up can I borrow your cell phone can I do this can I do that oh and then this this one couple and what kept ringing through my mind is radical hospitality like, I had, we had no choice to say, no, we can't help you. We had to help them. Matter of fact, it came down to it that this one particular girl who was desperate because of some reason, uh, we ended up paying the taxi uh, cab to drive her where she needed to go. So I said, if we stood there any longer, I said, we could set up a stand there and just uh, preach to them. I said, I, I need to call Rob to have his guys come down here and preach. Uh, of course, it was still pouring, and it was miserable, and it was cold, and, uh, but the Lord was just ringing through our minds radical hospitality. You've got to help these people. And, and so, see, that's something we can do because God did it to us. And so we are praising God, and we open ourselves up to be able to help others. And then in verse number three, shouldn't we offer our praise to God for simple acts of sympathy? that have been shown to us when we were in trouble, when somebody just reached out to us in trouble and it was the hand of God through you. And shouldn't we offer praise to God in verse number four for loyal and loving partners that he has given us in marriage and how he is teaching us how much purity before and in marriage is honorable in his sight? Shouldn't we give him praise for the institution of marriage that he designed and that when we live it properly and honorably that all the benefits that God intended come out in it? It's a great blessing. Shouldn't we praise God in verse number five that he has met our material needs and is presently helping us to learn realistic contentment? Being content with what you have, praising him for his providential and protective care every single day. And then also, shouldn't we offer a praise to God for his imitatable loyalty, verse 7 through 12, for those who have been models of loyalty in the Christian race, those who we can emulate and follow, whether it be a pastor or a preacher or a Bible teacher, a parent, whether it be a book, a biography we read, a friend who shared with us the word of God and lived the word of God. Also, we should want daily to offer up sacrifices of praise to God. Like 
just the simple gift of Jesus. Even the saving death of Jesus. The changelessness of God. The present help that he gives us every single day. The sound doctrine that he has imparted to us has imparted to us and protected in time and made available to us in the God-breathed scriptures that we hold in our hands. The salvation that we have been offered in his grace and that has been maintained by grace. The future plan of God that he's offered us in the word of God, that we are now living in a time where things are temporary. We're living in tents, but someday we're going to be living in a city whose builder and maker is God, and thanking God also for the valleys. And, you know, so the word here is saying here, listen, we ought to offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. So that's every time we praise God, it's a sacrifice before him. And God's pleased with sacrifices. It's, it's like the Old Testament says, in a sweet smells smelling a a savior in his nostrils he's pleased with proper sacrifice that's done in a way in fact just take your bibles real quick i just uh, thought about that as we were singing this morning but you know the last psalm says something very unique that has to do with praise and of course praise in hebrew means hallelujah but if you look at psalm 150 notice what it says here This is how he ends these songs of praise before God. And he says in Psalm 150, verse 1, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do you realize what he is saying here? Listen, in song, this is what pleases God that when you live your life, you are praising him for everything. And when we come to worship, and we come to worship our worship, that we lift up with our voices should be loud, in the sense that it should come deep from our heart, because we've been praising God all week, right? And so therefore, this, this is a, just a, something I, I'm glad when I'm with everybody else, because I sound better with everybody else than alone, praising God unless you have a good voice. Now that leads us to Hebrews chapter 13 to verse, the last part of verse number 15, and I'm kind of breaking this up just to give you a, a sense of what he is saying here about our sacrifice, not only sacrifice of praise to God, and then he says that is, explaining it, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. He goes from praise to thanks, praise to thanks, the fruit of your lips. That we are now under the new covenant, no longer do we have a heart of stone. 
You know what a heart of stone is, right? A heart of stone is a heart, a, a heart that is, blocks God, is hard toward God, is dead towards God, is unresponsive to God. And in the, under the new covenant, we have been given a heart of flesh. What does that mean? A heart that is responsive to God. A heart that is no longer hard but pliable by the will of God. A heart that is no longer dead but alive. A heart that wants to walk with God. The new heart is also bearing fruit, and that fruit is the lips. You're speaking things, things that are coming out of your mouth because of what has happened in your heart, right? So what is already in our heart comes out of our lips. In fact, what we really believe in our life and in our heart does come out of our mouth. Matter of fact, you can't hold it back. There's no way you can cork it. It has to come out. In fact, uh, if you see what it says here, it says the fruit of the lips giving thanks to his name. He uses the same word that's used in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession. Same word, it means to make confession. It shows how much Jesus means to you when you talk about him. When you openly confess your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not always the systematic uh, points of the gospel. That's not what he means here. He means your whole demeanor, how you think, what's going on in your heart that comes out openly acknowledging Christ and what he's done for you and then talking about it. In fact, one translation translates this passage like this, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. That's a great way to translate it. Who are, where's your allegiance? The definition of allegiance means loyalty or commitment of a subordinate to a superior or of an individual to a group or cause. So see, our allegiance here is to Christ. That's where our allegiance is. When it comes right down to it, our allegiance is always to Christ. Again, it's, it's the, uh, the Psalms who tells us this without turning there. In Psalm 50, it says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? God speaking, of course, there. In verse 14, it says this, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Honors me. So a Christian living their everyday life, when they are praising God for all the things I mentioned in this chapter and many, many more things, and then what comes out of their lips, what comes out of their mouth is not backbiting or complaining or gossiping, or moaning and groaning about your situation, or about this person or that person, it doesn't even come in. James says, how can from one fountain spew out bitter and sweet water? It can't happen. See, God wants us by his spirit to spew out sweet water all the time. That there's no room for backbiting, gossip, bickering, complaining, groaning in a Christian's life. 
And when you're there, you're already being displeasing to God. In fact, gossip is something Proverbs says God hates it because of the, all the damage it does in, 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 a, in a body, in, in a family, uh, on the job, wherever you were. Anybody who's a gossiper, you stay away from a gossiper. You stay away from people who are complaining and, and backbiting other people. We don't need to be doing that. We should call each other on the carpet when we notice it in our own life, and we should confess it immediately before God when we see it in our own life. Because it's going to happen, we are going to fall in those ways, and yet at the same time, we are to give sacrifices that come out of our lips to thank God because our allegiance is Jesus Christ, and no one's going to move us from that position ever. And then there is a third thing that comes under this in verse 16 of Hebrews 13, that Christians need to offer up sacrifice of compassionate service. He says this, and do not neglect doing good. Now, I thought about that when I read that. What is it? Do we forget to do good? Is that why it's there? In fact, I looked a little bit closer at this passage here, and the way it's designed, it has a present imperative with a negative, which really means this, to forbid a habitual action from happening amongst the congregation of believers. What's that? That you would forget, as a congregation, to do good. Because we have to remind it. We have to be reminded to do good. Simply showing kindness to others. Simply doing good to others. And of course, from the Ephesian passage of Scripture, simply walking in and practicing the good works you were ordained to do already. What does it say in Ephesians 2, verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Don't forget to walk in the ordained works that God's already called you to. I tell you what, if you are praising God and you're giving thanks, you will. If you're not doing those things, you will forget. Because you'll forget the source of all that you have which is God himself. In fact, the very word in Ephesians, we are his workmanship, is a word that can be translated poem. We are God's poem. It's, it's amazing that that word is used because what is a poem? A poem is a, a, poem is a piece of writing that, that really partakes of the nature of both speech and song, and that is it is nearly always rhythmical. It's got meter to it. It exhibits a form of elements like rhyme and stanzas and structures to it. It's, matter of fact, poems are often considered beautiful literature because of the way they're set up. God is saying here, when you walk in your, your ordained works, you are displaying my poem to humanity. That's exactly what I did. I came to do. I came to make you my poem. God speaks the universe. He speaks everything into existence. So it is his spoken word through us 
that he exemplifies who he is to other people. So when a Christian is engaged and ready to do good, they are actually displaying the wise generosity of God. I remember back in Proverbs, I'd like to take your Bibles there, Proverbs chapter 3, when I was looking in that passage of Scripture, I came across an interesting phrase in this passage that was talking about that. Here's wisdom. Here's what is a wise person ought to do. And it says this in Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, in Proverbs 3.27, it says, informs us of this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. See, in other words, the wise person is obligated before God to help. And, of course, the words usually here generosity or sharing material goods and the phrase to whom it is due is really the wisdom of the teacher is, is in, intends in his words to be general in scope but applicable in a different kind of uh, that were to be display this goodness in all kinds of circumstances that it's not translated in this way our neighbor's right uh, our neighbor's need for help but our neighbor's right for help that Christians have a right by God himself to help those who are in need. And then he says this, when it is within your power. It's the very word that he uses for God's power. In other words, if it's in your hand and you have the power to fashion it, to accomplish it, to produce the need, then you act like God when you act good in supplying someone's need. So in a, real, a very real, real way, our neighbor has a claim on any goods that we can spare to help to meet their needs. And of course, there's always a choice in it. I can help somebody or not help somebody. In verse number 28, it says this. It says, do not say to your neighbor, in other words, we have a choice. We have a choice to delay helping. The delay is really a good tactic because you hope the person forgets or they, they find someone else to help them, right? But look what it says in verse 28. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. See, procrastination until tomorrow can be applied to infinite postponement. But see, in other words, that that's not wisdom. That's foolishness before God. When it's in your power to do it, and God's given it to you. He's not asking you to be giving stuff away that you can't give away in the first place. He's not asking you to go in debt. He's asking you to be wise about what you, own, what you have so you can help, help others. And when you have it with you, then give it because when you do that, you display the deeds of kindness that God has displayed to you to someone else. So when we look at a passage of Scripture like this, we come head on to radical the radical nature of God's wisdom. Wisdom leads to a life of goodwill and helpfulness. A wise person becomes a blessing to any church or any community or any job site. And then the one last thing in Hebrews chapter 13, when we are looking at this whole thing about the particulars 
of Christian worship. Not only is it thankful praise and then also shameless witness. You're a shameless witness before someone because Christ is your allegiance, but it's also compassionate service. And then the last part is simply this, big-hearted, open-handed giving. Big-hearted, open-handed giving. And do not neglect to do good and sharing, it says. And sharing, that's generosity. Don't neglect to do those things. Don't be big-hearted and open-handed as a believer. Because it's the very word fellowship here. Sharing is fellowshipping with God as you fellowship with others. So if you are praising God, if you are thanking God, then you know what? You will be that vessel of good works that displays goodness and generosity and sharing with other people. And when you do that, all those are all pleasing to God. That's your sacrifices. So how are you living it? That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's, that's a pretty simple uh, thing to measure yourself by. In this last one, you're sharing, you're sharing what you have. You're, it, it's also including monetary offerings in behalf of needy people. It's also the regular, methodical, proportionate, cheerful giving that we ought to do as believers according to the word of God. So, so really, we have come full circle in explaining the real reason we offer these sacrifices to God, to please him. And that's what we have in verse number 16. It says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices. God is pleased. Don't you want to please God? Is that difficult to understand? I think the intention of the author is to make it as simple and as clear as possible that this is how you're to live your life. With all the theology in Hebrews, this is how you live. All that theology doesn't produce a big head. It produces a big heart. And it produces a big heart for God first and then for people. That's what it does. That's what theology does. If theology just gives you a big head and you're like you're going to explode and you have all the answers to all the questions that people are ever going to ever ask you and that you're the go-to person, then there's a problem. That's not what it does. In fact, it's amazing how Paul in the Corinthian, in, uh, to, to the Colossian church brings this all together. I was really surprised when I saw this. In Colossians chapter 1, he actually brings all these together, and he says this in verse number 10. Colossians 1, verse 10, it says, it says this. And this is almost like the, the pattern, the circle of Christian growth. This is how it starts. This is where it ends. And he says this in Colossians 1.10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. All right? So we're walking with the Lord. And then to please him in all respects. And then what? Bearing fruit in every good work. And what? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, if you remember way back when, when I was saying that if you want to increase your faith, you increase your knowledge of God. And when your knowledge of God increases, your faith increases. So that's what's going on here. That we live a life pleasing in all respects. We bear fruit of the good works God ordained us for. And then we increase in the knowledge of God. And there is the cycle. There we go around and around. They please the Lord in all respects. They bear fruit in every good works. And they increase in the knowledge of God. So are you doing that? 
Is that a pattern of your life? That's what it means to live by faith. So let's live by faith and be a sacrifice well-pleasing to God. Let's do that. This next coming year, let's make this a point of our prayer. That whatever pleases God, that's what we're going to decide to do. And the things that you've been doing in your life that have not been pleasing God, that's what you're going to decide not to do anymore. And that you keep driving out things that don't please God with things that please God until, until you die. Until God decides, like Enoch, to take you because you're so pleasing to him. He would rather have you with him than where you're at. That's how we ought to live. That is a great thought for this next coming year. And you know what? It's easy to look at your life and see, how am I living? What am I doing? How am I thinking? What am I allowing to influence my life? Who am I allowing to influence my life? Do I have, are my affections for God being heightened every single day? Is Christ my highest allegiance, or do I have other allegiances that have taken his place? That's idolatry, by the way. Let's do that this year. Let's pray right now. Lord, this morning, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, for mostly the simplicity of what it says. We can be all these things, Lord, by your Spirit. All those who come to you and approach you through Christ, those who live by faith in a pleasing manner, those who, Lord, want to do it in every respect of our life, those who are your poem and displaying the good works that you're working through them, and those who as they are learning the word of God, are increasing more and more in the knowledge of God, so therefore their faith is increasing. And so, Lord, help us that our worship would be day by day, that it would be filled with thankful praise, that it would be, Lord, also filled with shameless, a shameless witness, that it would be filled, Lord Jesus, with a compassionate service and, Lord, just a generous heart. And I pray as we do that, Lord, we would be able to display before the world the very things that you want the world to know because we know you in a very personal way as our Lord and Savior. Lord, this coming year, let it be our prayer that we would examine ourselves to see how pleasing we really are to you and that we would adjust our lives and repent of our sin and get on track in walking in pace and in step with, your, with you, Lord, and your word. And I pray, Lord, you would receive the glory and honor and that this next year would be a, a great year of growing deeply in our faith with you, in our relationship with you, to the point that we would not want it any other way, that our affections would be so heightened that our love for you would be displayed in 
what we say, what we think, and what we do. And I pray this in your matchless name. Amen.